Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 185, Why I Don't Believe in the Rapture. And on the podcast this week, you can tell based upon the title what, in fact, I plan to talk about this week. And many of you found the podcast during the Revelation series, and it's typically when studying the book of Revelation where ideas of the rapture come up. There are some passages in the Gospels, there are some in Paul's letters as well, that those who hold to the belief that there will come a point in time before a great and and terrible tribulation period on the earth, that God will remove his faithful Christians from the earth before they have to, or the rest of the world rather, goes through this great tribulation. And there is a lot of discussion today, particularly as it relates to events continuing to unfold in Israel-Palestine and the belief in the way scripture is interpreted and how many people choose to believe that scripture will be interpreted. And as a result of some of those decisions along the way, um, with the help of a belief in theology called dispensationalism, There is this idea that there is a separate ending point and separate destination points for God's plans for his spiritual people, the church, and God's plans for his physical people, the Jews. And the rapture fits right in the middle of that. And it has, in fact, in my mind, clouded the thinking of many Christians throughout the years. And if you are like me and grew up in a context where this was taught, Um, This episode may be helpful for you. It may be clarifying for you. I am not here to pick on anyone, Um, but as my wife laughed when she heard the title of this week's episode, she says, haven't you talked about that already? And I said, well, on the podcast going through Revelation, I have probably hinted at it along the way, but never given an actual episode to my reasons biblically and practically and theologically why I don't believe in it. And so this is not for me to prove anyone wrong or get into some senseless argument. I'm not arrogant enough to believe that what I think automatically means I'm right. I've just decided to title this why I don't believe in the rapture and these are my reasons. So you may have others. You may disagree with my reasons and that's perfectly fine as it's been all along the time I've been doing this podcast. So this is for us to engage the scriptures, engage one another in community, even if that community is over the internet. And hopefully what I share today will be helpful for you. Again, I have friends who believe in the rapture, so I'm not speaking about this with any disdain or any ugliness. I am just going to present what I understand the Bible to be teaching and why I don't think it supports a belief in a rapture. So without any more of an introduction, let's just get right into it. Inserting an episode on the rapture, I felt was really fitting for our current series on heaven because for many Christians, at least in America, where rapture thinking has taken its strongest hold, The idea that between now where we live and that one day when we will all be in heaven with God, the only thing standing between now and then is this idea of a rapture. And so 
the context in which I grew up spent a lot of its time talking about the rapture and talking about Jesus could come at any moment. And some of the scenes that are painted, I think I alluded to this last week on the on the podcast, but some of the scenes that were depicted, I remember songs um, sung about this in my junior high and high school years, some of the scenes in movies depicting cars crashing into one another because the driver of said car was a Christian in the moment, you know, he ascended up to heaven or she ascended up to heaven to meet Jesus in the air, you know, there was no longer anyone driving their car. And so, of course, if your car's going 60 miles an hour down the road and the driver disappears, well, then the car's just going to crash, right? And the same would be true of planes or helicopters or whatever. And it was kind of fantastical. It was kind of crazy, somewhat freaky scenes of, you know, bodies floating up into heaven and on and on and on. And, and many of you may know of the, the, the Left Behind series of books that was written in the late 90s, the early 2000s. Generally speaking, those fictional books have worked their way into the imagination of many, many, many Americans and many American Christians regarding what they think the end, quote unquote, will be like. And so there are lots of Christians who console themselves with the knowledge that when the world gets terrible, you know, we're not going to be here and revelation doesn't really relate to us. And many of you shared with me over email or Facebook messenger or phone calls or texts or, or whatever that you had never heard revelation taught the way that I taught it. And as you listened through on the podcast, you told me how thankful you were. Many of you wrote and said how it was the series on revelation that got you through the tumultuous times of COVID and the, and the crazy times of uh, um, political upheaval and, and, and this, that, and the other thing. And one of the reasons why it, it made such an impact on so many of you was because I don't look at the rapture as something that shows up in that book and therefore don't imagine that when all the events being described there are happening when we're no longer here. No, I really think that John intended a church in the first century to take encouragement from what he was writing to them about their own situation. And when I chose to teach it to you in the same way, it, it brings a, an extra powerful punch. Um, and that's why I've chosen to do that. And so here on the podcast, I thought, you know, I'm talking about this idea, heaven coming to earth in the person of Jesus, ultimate redemption being a, a directional God coming to us. I said Jesus' teaching in John 14 was not about us going to heaven. It was about him going to the cross, and he is making a way for his Father and for him to make their home with us, and that ultimately is what he has done through the Spirit. And the more I talk about the trajectory of that's the heavens coming to the earth, not the earth going to the heavens, the more I realize how backwards, in a sense, the rapture teaching is. And so that's why I've chosen to insert it here on the podcast. And I do hope that this is helpful. As I said in the beginning, this is why I don't believe in the rapture. Uh, this is not why a million other people don't believe in it. This is not why you should believe in it. This is not why, you know, the, the guy you were taught in Sunday school taught this. It, it's totally fine. Some people get upset. Some people think, okay, maybe all my church leaders just lied to me and, and they've been, they've known all this stuff was wrong the whole time. People only know what they are taught. And if they're not taught, 
that there is another way to look at reality, then they just assume that there's not another way to look at it. So when you listen to an episode like this, if you've never heard teaching contradicting the idea of the rapture, be easy on yourself and be easy on your leaders. Um, I know some of you have said you've come from church contexts where you don't want to be easy on the leaders because you really think they were abusive and oppressive, and that may be true. I don't know your situation. And if that's your situation, I am seriously sorry, and I am thankful that you maybe are no longer in those places and that you found some healing and some community where you're able to find hope and help and love and support. Um, If I can be an extension of that, please let me know how, and I would love to do it. But for here, what I'm sharing with you are just the reasons why I don't hold to it. And I, of course, think I have good reasons, but you can be the judge of that ultimately. So as we jump in, um, for me, and many of you know this already, you know, the book of Revelation is one of the most meaningful books of the Bible to me. And yes, I spent 80 episodes on this podcast going through Revelation. And if you haven't yet listened to those and would like to, you know, episode number 39 starts the series with sort of an overview. And then we get into it um, over the next, you know, like I said, 80 episodes or whatever. And so you're, you're welcome to look at that. I've titled each section based upon the passages themselves. And we kind of went section by section through the book. But in the one book of the Bible then, Revelation, that deals explicitly with the end, right? This is the end. Everything is happening. I find it personally fascinating that there is no mention or even hint of a rapture. So this is basically where I start, is I start with the idea that there is no hint or mention. Now, the word rapture, believe it or not, never even shows up in the Bible. Now, that by itself isn't necessarily a reason to reject it. As many people have pointed out, the word Trinity does not show up in the Bible. And that's also true. Um, We make inferences from various passages, but we do not have the word itself. So I don't reject the rapture because the word doesn't show up, because there are in fact other things I believe um, that aren't in the Bible. But, But I will say in Revelation, there's no mention or even hint of a rapture. You have to insert rapture thinking into the reading of Revelation. But, but for John, that kind of thinking is entirely foreign. Now, the most used argument in support of this belief is the fact that there is no reference to church from chapters 4 through 20 in Revelation, suggesting to rapture believers that the church is now absent from the events being described in these chapters i.e. they've been raptured. So there's a belief that for chapters 1, 2, and 3, the church is here. John's writing to the church in chapter 4. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven. And the the voice which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And so there are a couple of references to after this. And so rapture believers simply say, yes, it's right here between the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four, where the church has been raptured. Now, on the surface, this seems to confirm their belief, right? The, 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 the word is not there. Um, many of my rapture believing friends stand confidently on this very point. Um, it, they're just like, the word's not there. It can't, you know, the church isn't there. He's not writing to Christians anymore. But to believe 
that the only way for John to refer to Christians is by calling them the church is not only unnecessarily limiting, it also betrays a total ignorance of the rest of the New Testament. For in half of Paul's letters, he addresses his letter to the saints. So let me give you an example. Romans 1, 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 2 Corinthians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, right? So in both 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul uses the word church and the word saints. But as I read that phrase, I cannot figure out how Paul is making a distinction between the two. He says to the church in Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So he identifies a city that has a church in it, but then he identifies all the saints who were in the whole of Achaia or a region that encompasses the city, but is much larger than that. So it might be like Paul writing a letter to your city, but then saying to all the saints in your county, right? Or in your you know, in your state or something like that. Ephesians 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Colossians 1, 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, while the word church does not occur in Revelation 4 through 20, guess what word does? That's right, saints. And it appears 13 times. So to suggest that John is no longer writing to the church actually just doesn't make any sense. Of course he's writing to the church, just like he was in Ephesus and Philippi, even though he addresses his letter to the saints. Notice that to the letter to Ephesus, to the Philippians, and to the Colossians, he never once says church. He says to the saints, to all the saints, to the saints. Now, later in the book, I know in Ephesians, for instance, he'll reference the church, but to begin the letter, he writes it to the saints. So this argument, to my mind, that, that the church is absent because the word church doesn't appear in the, in the chapters of Revelation, in my mind, this is simply trying so hard to confirm a belief that simply isn't there, that adherence to this view start believing things that are actually quite silly. And I don't mean to be derogatory. Like, I really, it bothers me sometimes when people call me silly, because that's sort of a you know, hey, silly, you're being dumb or whatever. You know, I get it. But but I've heard people use this argument and I just want to scratch my head and say, what? If you read the New Testament, speaking of saints, they are the called out ones. They are the holy ones. And they comprise the church, which is the ecclesia or the, the assembly, the gathering. Well, it's a gathering of what? Of saints. 
It's a gathering of called out people who form a unit called the church. So yes, Paul writes, or I'm sorry, John writes to churches in the first century, but throughout the rest of the book, especially when imagery is what is capturing John's imagination, he simply chooses the word saints, not because Christians are no longer there, but because saints and church are used interchangeably, even in the normal parts of our Bible, like Paul's letters. So that's my first reason. Um, I don't think it's supported and it shows up nowhere in the book. So we're not given any indication that as we continue reading right on through chapter four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve in Revelation, that we have any reason to conclude that the church has been mysteriously removed. My second reason for not holding to the rapture is that it doesn't actually work in places where actual persecution take place. Part of the history of belief in the rapture is about 150 years old, and it was started by a guy named John Narson, um, Narson, Narson, or, uh, John Nelson Darby, excuse me, in, in England, and he attempted to spread some of his beliefs around, and nobody really listened too much to it. So he came over to America with his ideas and started sharing them here, and they caught on. Now, that's helpful to know because even in the unfolding of its own history, it took root here, but it didn't take root in another country. And that always causes my ears to perk up and I want to know why. So in America then, where this thinking has taken the strongest hold, the times – now again, this is my perspective, right? I've not heard every argument, but I've lived enough years to have heard several – But the times when rapture believers are the most certain that the rapture is near is when the wrong political candidate is threatening to get voted in or the wrong policy has just been enacted or the NFL has become too political for them or all their freedoms are being threatened or they're reading an article that's talking about some crazy thing that's happening in California and they're quite certain that those laws that have just been, you know, completely brainwashed of going out there on the west are going to work their way over here and all of a sudden America as we know it is just going to crumple into a pile of nothing. And it's generally spoken about with fear, with panic, with urgency. You, you know the lingo. You're going to hear it this year if you haven't already. It's an election year again. You know, here we are 4 years removed from COVID. I was teaching Revelation four years ago, you're going to hear the language. It's typically rooted in fear. It's rooted in doom and gloom. It's rooted in threats. It's rooted in anxieties. It's rooted in what about our kids and what kind of world are they going to be in? I mean, I'm not trying to minimize these things. I just want to frame it in such a way that you realize it's at these times when people are like, oh my gosh, the world is getting so bad. When is God going to come back? And yet, let's be honest. That's pretty cushy living, if you ask me. If these are the signs that things are getting really bad, or these are kind of occurrences or evidences that God is going to swoop down anytime now and rescue his followers from these horrible times, what would you say to a Christian community living in Palestine right now, for example, who've been forced off the land their family has owned for generations, pushed into refugee camps, walled inside, given barely enough resources to live on, and then bombed by the Israeli government in the name of God and the Israelis' right to their land. 
Would you say to them, hey, it'll be okay. The rapture will come any day now. But it hasn't come for decades and things continue to get worse. Where's the hope there? How much worse do things actually have to get? I mean, that's a legitimate question for millions of Christians around the world. And I personally decided long time ago that I want a view of God and his kingdom that works anywhere in the world. Revelation emphasizes time and again a kingdom of priests from every tribe and language and people and nation. God's kingdom is universal. And I want my theology to be universal too. And my personal perspective is that rapture thinking is a Western belief system where we experience little, if any, real persecution. And so I think it takes root here. Our lives are nice. Before stuff gets really bad, which again is foreign to us as Americans, well, it's okay. It's no big deal. This fits an American mindset, right? God's just going to pull us out of the world before stuff gets really bad so that we don't have to experience it. And we're going to couch it or we're going to frame it in. God loves us too much to let us suffer this way. I'm going to challenge that in just a second. But this more or less feeds right into my third point, And that is that this really does embrace an escapist mindset. It embraces this idea that the world is crumbling, it's going south, it's going downhill, and we're just going to leave this place. Um, I don't know this for a fact. I, I surmise that there are some connections somewhere historically to this, but I think somewhere in the history of rapture thinking and this escapist mentality, I do think is the idea that, that many Christians who hold to this view tend not to concern themselves quite so much with the care of the creation um, because they tend to think that it's just going to be destroyed and God's going to take us away from here. And, you know, to hell with it is kind of the idea, right? And so we're going to leave. We're just going to escape. I think this feeds right into a very pietistic Christianity where the staple evidence of your sincerity and love and loyalty to God is your personal, private, devotional life where you just sequester yourself off from the rest of the world. And if the world is crumpling, people are hungry, violence is happening around you, political decisions are being made. Well, you know what? That's all worldly stuff. We're just going to focus inward now. And that's going to be the primary way in which we show Jesus our loyalty to him. Believe it or not, while that has a place, that also can bleed really quickly into an escapist mindset. I'm just going to escape. And since I'm not yet removed from the earth entirely, I'm going to at least remove myself from those chaotic events around me. And I'm just going to hold myself up in my house or in my church doing a Bible study or reading my Bible on my own, that kind of thing. And so, again, there is nothing wrong with doing a Bible study and reading the Bible. But when we pull ourselves away too much from the events of our world, it allows us to start thinking, yeah, it's really an escape. And all we have to do is hold on and you know, kind of embody this escapist, loyal mindset to Jesus, hold on long enough for Jesus to then come through and actually, um, you know, pull us out of here for real. And I just think that's where it ends up. And I don't think that's 
all there is to say on that point that that's enough for me to just say I don't want to feed into this idea that as things get really, really bad, that Jesus is just going to remove us from the scene. I think that encourages us to disconnect from a care for what comes in our world and, and, a, and a care for what people might call worldly things, right? Like poverty. Well, your real need is spiritual. It's not physical. Well, that's an escapist mentality. That's an idea that we're going to be just yanked away from this world. This world doesn't matter or that people's physical needs don't matter, but only their spiritual ones do. We're, we're, we're making a separation between the spiritual and the physical. And I think we do it in the same way that people make a separation between the heavens and the earth. They make a separation. They like the idea that the spiritual things are what really count, but not the earthly things. Well, that's a belief that fits the rapture because we think the end of all things, we leave this lower than, less than, or in some people's minds, worthless place called the earth where we're obsessed with material things, and we go off into this superior, better, greater spiritual reality called heaven, which is where the real things are. And so there are people who believe in that idea that we will leave this earth, leave it behind, and go to a better place and simply live that out while they're still on the earth. By elevating the spiritual over against the physical, instead of saying what Jesus said, and that is that if your heart was really in tune with God in the heavenly places, you would be concerned with reality on the earth because God himself put on flesh and came to us here. And that's really, um, I think, the, the some of the best news actually that you could possibly hear, but that's the gospel as I understand it embodied most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus. And so I think, and this leads me kind of to my fourth point, but I believe that a belief in the rapture betrays this fundamental misunderstanding about God's work of redemption in the world, right? And so let me, I'm, I kind of went off notes. Let me swing back into my notes. I may repeat a couple things here, but that's okay. The good news of the gospel is that God comes to us, right? The incarnation of Jesus. And he joins us in our human struggle. In other words, as we've seen over the past several weeks, Jesus brings the blessings of heaven to the earth. Now we have this picture all through the Bible, right? In Daniel chapter three, you may not have remembered this story uh, except for Sunday school when you were a kid. That's unfortunate, but you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown in the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, and one like a son of the gods is seen by the king in the fire with them, and he keeps them from its destruction. It says they come out of the fire, that they don't smell like smoke, nothing has been burned, and yet when those three men come back out, those who were tending to the fire get thrown in, and they are burned up before they even hit the bottom um, you know, before they even get inside the furnace, like the furnace is so blazing hot. And this is instructive for us for in a lot of ways. Um, primarily destruction being this place of fire. And yet notice what the fire doesn't do to the faithful, but what it does do to those who stand opposed to God. It's the same exact fire, but the Lord meets Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, and he keeps them from its destruction. It says there are four of them now. I thought we only threw three into the fire. Four of them are in there, and they're walking around together. One of them looks like a son of the gods. Now, 
To my mind, this sounds an awful lot like John's exhortation to the Christians in Philadelphia, right? He says to them, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, this passage in Revelation 3.10, this is another place that rapture believers go when they try to support their belief. They interpret the phrase, I will keep you from the hour of trial as meaning I will remove you from that trial before it begins. All right, that, that's the interpretive move that's done with Revelation 3.10, right? But to take the word keep, I will keep you from the hour of trial and interpret it as remove is an irresponsible decision to say the least. And the reason is really quite simple. The word keep is used twice in that verse. The first being, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world, right? So could you imagine interpreting the first keep as remove? So what if I read it this way? Because you have removed my word about patient endurance. Um, no, that would mean the exact opposite of the clear meaning, right? What the Philadelphian Christians are being recognized for is obeying the truth by holding on to it even when it was difficult to do so, right? John says to them, he knows that they're a small church. He knows that they're weak, but they're being faithful. And to those who continue to be faithful, he is going to keep them from the hour of trial because they've kept his word. So what he's actually saying is, as a result, God is going to hold on to them even when it becomes difficult to do so, just like they have held on to the truth even when it was difficult for them to do so. God is going to keep them. He is going to protect them, guard them, and hold them. He is not going to remove them. Now, to my mind, this is the hopeful message our brothers and sisters in Palestine would want to hear right now. And as Pastor Munther Isaac preached on Christmas Eve 2023 in Bethlehem, his sermon, Jesus is under the rubble. He is with the Palestinians in their suffering, keeping them, sustaining them, strengthening them, holding them, and suffering right alongside them. He sees their pain, hears their cries, and is with them in the midst of all of it. That's what Revelation is trying to get us to grasp. That is what the church is called to embody. The idea, which to some Christians might sound pleasant, and that is that we are going to be removed from the hour of trial before it comes on the whole world, does not actually provide hope to the kinds of Christians who are already facing tremendous trial and haven't been removed from it. You know, I want to square that passage in Philippi or in, in um, Revelation chapter 3 with something like James chapter 1, which says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, right? So like this idea that, you know, James tells us to rejoice when we face trials, but then John's going to tell us in Revelation that God's going to remove us before we have to go through trials. Like understanding trials is a reality 
for the universal church. It may be limited in our much more cushioned Western 21st century American context, but that certainly does not mean that there are not Christians in other parts of the world, and quite frankly, even Christians in America who aren't middle, upper-class white people like I am, who experience difficulty, tribulation, suffering, persecution, you name it, It is hopeful to them to know that Jesus is with them in that. He says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, not I will remove you from this terrible age so that you can be with me. No, I will be with you is what Jesus says as he leaves at the end of Matthew's gospel. That's the hopeful message. Now, these are just my philosophical reasons, okay? I I mean, I, I don't know that I'm necessarily giving these to you in any order, I came home from a workout Monday morning with several thoughts swirling in my mind and I got to my computer and just started typing as fast as I could and cut and paste some things and I kind of kept going with this for a few days before I decided to record this episode. So I'm not telling you that the order in which I'm presenting these are the most logical order. They're not even the most important order. They're just the order that I thought about sharing them. But let me give you a couple of passages. Um, There are a few passages in the New Testament that do seem to support the idea of a rapture. In fact, um, one of the passages in particular is where many of the drawings come from. It's also many um, where the idea of the um, cars being without drivers or planes being without pilots image comes from. That comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, But the idea of the Left Behind series as it is... um, Um, formerly called, I guess, is actually coming out of the Gospels where Jesus references um, something that, you know, two will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left and this kind of thing, like left behind, right? And um, I I do remember a song that I used to... (laughs) listened to in my youth group gatherings. And as a kid, I never paid much attention to lyrics. Uh, My wife was really good at this kind of thing. I always just focused in on the beat and the kind of music and would hum the songs or whatever. And it wasn't until years later when I took the time to listen to the lyrics, but it was a song. um, If I'm not mistaken, I think it was DC Talk. I wish we'd all been ready was the name of the song. And I I saw the lyrics printed in a book and it just dumbfounded me. And it didn't connect until a friend pointed out to me um, this song that he thought a certain band played. And I went and listened to it again. And it was Cringe City because I would be hanging out with my friends and would be getting ready to do a Bible study. And the name of the song was, I wish we'd all been ready. But the idea was that these friends of yours are now left behind and they're going to be facing all this destruction. And I wish we had been, I wish we had paid more attention to God's warnings when we were still alive, but now it's too late kind of idea. And that was the point of the song, which is so unnerving to me, particularly for what I'm about to share with you from these passages. So what I want to do is actually look at where the left behind idea comes from. I'm going to pull passages, just Matthew's version of this and then Luke's version of this. And we'll just talk about it for just a second. But in Matthew 24, I'm just going to read for you where these beliefs come from. Okay. It's really what I want to share with you. So in Matthew 24, 36 to 42, it said, Jesus is talking and he says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now that passage at the very end, verse 42 that I just read there from Matthew 24 says, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And rapture believers will focus in on this verse. This is the verse that was the impetus behind the song that I was just now talking about where, you know, I wish we'd all been ready. And it was singing about this day that the rapture came. In other words, we wish that we had been awake. We wish that we had been ready So that when he came and took us to be with him, we would go with him. We would go up to heaven and, you know, all these crazy events are going to now happen on the earth. Well, the decision was being made in the left behind mindset that when Jesus speaks of two being in the field, one is taken and one is left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The idea being presented, the assumption being made is that the ones who are left are in trouble. The ones who are taken are going to heaven. That's just the way the, the, the teaching was given. I don't know if anybody took the time to do in-depth Bible study about that. I don't really remember growing up hearing it. And no, I did not go consult several books that teach dispensational thinking or rapture thinking before I decided to teach on this. I just happened to know that these are the primary passages where this comes from. I will, I do want to point out before I even kind of, you know, look at the passage a little bit more is that Jesus is talking about, um, that hour, right? The coming of the son of man. And he says the coming of the son of man again, he says it once in verse 37 and then again in verse 39. Now I do want to point out that, that belief in a so-called rapture is actually an imposition on the text. It's something that you're reading into the text because there's really no reason biblically to suppose that these passages are describing anything other than the second coming of Jesus. Um, The idea that there are two comings, right, or what some people will call like a third coming is sort of how rapture thinking seems to work in my mind. Jesus came once. He's going to come again to to bring his saved people with him, and then he's going to come a third time to judge everybody, right? Well, no, the New Testament speaks over and over and over and over about Jesus coming again, right? It's just, he came once, incarnation, he's raised, he ascends to the Father, he's gonna come again, and he's going to establish the end. Now there's some technicalities of what happens when and who and what and all that, but the point being, he comes once in the incarnation and then he comes again. But I wanna look at these this passage that I just read for just a second because Jesus gives us a clue about how he wants us to understand the two men in the field, one will be taken and one left, and two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. So I want you to know the example that he gives, the illustration he uses to support what he's about to say is the story of Noah. And he says, as in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. Okay, great. So the days of Noah, this flood's gonna come and it's gonna be this, this moment, right, of destruction, Jesus says, 
and we would think, sure, it's destruction, right? It's, it's, it's the great tribulation. Um, God's going to remove his people from, from the earth, just like Noah and his family were removed from the earth. And then, um, you know, then all these other people are going to be, you know, caught up in judgment. It's, it's so simple. But I want you to, to follow the logic of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So I want you to think about this for just a second. Who is the swept them all away? It's those people who were drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they, those people, were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So the question is, who is being swept away? It's the unbelievers. It's the wicked. Who is staying? That's Noah and his family inside the ark. This coming destruction, if you will, is not speaking about Jesus returning. You know, that would be an odd comparison to make, right? Well, this was a destructive day of the flood, but the coming of the Son of Man is going to be destructive. Well, according to rapture thinking, the only thing that's happening when Jesus comes to rapture his church is something good. Jesus is coming to help his church. But if that were true, then Jesus is making a comparison between his coming to rescue his faithful people before tribulation and comparing that to the horrible events of the flood. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what he explicitly says is two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Who's the one that's left? It's not a person who is sad and discouraged that they've been left behind. This is a person who is likened to Noah and his family who are now still here. The destruction that Jesus is speaking about and almost always does in the Gospels is much less to do with the very end of time and what is going to happen. And he almost always compares it to his own people's generation and their, um, as they're about ready to face overthrow by the Romans. And Jesus speaks this way quite a bit because the Romans are going to come in and they're going to take people off into captivity. It was an image that was painted a lot of the time in the book of Jeremiah, for example, that, 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 that Babylon was going to come in. He was going to take people out of the land and take them off to exile. Exile was the place of death. It was removal from the land. All of these images are being communicated in Jesus's one image, but he is now saying two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. Not a good thought. Not a good thing. And the other is left. That's a better place. No one in his family were left. The wicked were all swept away. Now, just in case we think or you think or your friends think like that's okay. He's playing fast and loose with that language. I don't think that I am. That to me makes way more sense of what Jesus is saying. But even if you did, I want to read you a passage from Luke 17 where Jesus is doing the same thing. But Luke adds a couple variations to the way Matthew tells it. So Jesus, and let me just jump straight to it. It's the end of Luke chapter 17 in the section where Jesus is talking. He says, I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And so 
you know, right here, it's a little bit different. Instead of two men in a field, it's there will be two in one bed. One will be taken in their left. It doesn't matter, right? He's just giving us comparisons. There are going to be two. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. One's going to be taken. One's going to be left. So in Luke 17, verse 35, it says, there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And the disciples said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, when Jesus says one will be taken and the other left, and his disciples say, where, Lord? Listen to what they're asking him. Where is that person going to be taken? And what does Jesus say? Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Does that sound like being whisked up to heaven to you? No, that sounds a whole lot like the way the Old Testament speaks about judgment. The corpse and the vultures and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field feasting on flesh. Like that's the way Deuteronomy describes the punishment and the judgments that will befall on, onto God's people for unfaithfulness. Rapture thinking, the left behind, the left behind in these passages are the saved. They're not the damned. So rapture theology, if you will, gets this entirely backwards. And they literally named an entire series of books after this idea. And it is a complete contradiction to Jesus's whole point. And he gives us the reason for believing that by painting the picture of Noah and what Noah meant back then. It's going to be the same thing today. And then in Luke, he makes it unbelievably clear. Where are they going to be taken, Lord? And Jesus says, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's describing they're headed to a place of judgment, which means the rapture thinking makes no sense because no one, least of which Jesus, would describe heaven as where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, there's one more passage that shows up in rapture thinking, and it is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Again, I do think that there is no reason to suppose that this passage as well is describing anything other than the second coming of Jesus. But let's just listen to the passage and then I'll talk about it for just a few minutes. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, who, who, as others do who have no hope. Excuse me. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this passage, again, we have no reason to suppose that when Paul says the coming of the Lord, that that's not exactly what he means. He means the coming of the Lord, right? The same thing that Jesus described as the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Lord. It's his second coming. It's his return. 
But in, in Thessalonians, they were a little bit bothered by the fact that some of their faithful brothers and sisters had since died and Jesus hasn't yet come back. And so they're going to say, well, what's to be done with those people? Are they going to be forgotten? Are they not going to have any special place? And Paul's like, actually, no. When Jesus comes back, like they're going to be given first place. Like they're going to come and they're going to raise before we do. And they're going to meet the Lord in the air. Now, and this is what's an interesting phrase. This is, again, where the images come from of people floating up to heaven, right? It says, verse 17 is the, is the key verse. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, here's the image. The image is, in rapture thinking, that Jesus is going to descend partway from heaven to earth. The dead in Christ will rise first. They will float up to meet Jesus at whatever point in the sky he has descended to. Then the rest of the people who are alive will also ascend to meet them in the air and meet Jesus. And so they will forever be with the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting. When, when people paint this picture, they generally talk about Jesus kind of descending partway, people floating up to meet Jesus. And then the whole group, Jesus and the people floating all the way up to heaven. Now, that's an assumption that's made, that that's just an assumption, that that's the direction people are going. It's not explicitly listed for us here in this passage, but Paul then says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why? Because we will always be with the Lord. Well, this is interesting because the, the Greek word here used is the word parousia, um, and it was used a lot of times in the ancient world, or you know, uh, dating back to at least 300 years before Jesus, right on through the present. And it occurred as early as the third century to describe the visit of a king or a dignitary to a city, um, a, a visit arranged in order to show the visitor's magnificence to the people. So the word parousia was also used for the arrival of a king in a city. So whenever a ruler visited, there was always a lot of pomp and ceremony, you know, pomp and circumstance, excitement, celebration, that kind of things. Heralds would announce the impending event. And city officials formed a procession to greet the king as he approached, and they would escort him back into their city. So this is like a king, maybe, who has returned from a great battle. He is run, people from the city rush out to greet him, to welcome him into their city, and then they walk back alongside him while he's on his horse or what have you, back into their city. It's a procession in order to welcome him into their place. So when Paul uses this word parousia in referring to Jesus' coming, I think he's suggesting the same kind of thing. Christ the King will come, and his people will go to greet him, in the air and escort him as he comes to where they live. This is the picture in the first century. We, we know this, like 
Pilate rides in to Jerusalem. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And where do people go? They go out to meet them and they lay palm branches out and they lay their cloaks on the ground and they worship him as he's riding into the city. Why? Because they believe he is their savior. He's their king. He's going to do for them what they've long since wanted. So here's Jesus who's at the father's right hand in the heavenly places. He's going to descend at the sound of the trumpet and the, those who are in Christ, who've died in Christ, are going to be given prominence and priority to be among the first to go up and meet him outside their city, right? And bring him back into their space. And then how does Paul end it? And so we will always be with the Lord. You see, the image in the first century context is that those would go out to the king and they would bring him back into their city, not that they would go out to their king and then the king would turn around and take them back out of the city somewhere else. No, he's returning to his people who've been longing for him to be waiting for him. And so the trajectory of the rapture is just backwards. Salvation isn't about us going up to heaven. It's about heaven coming down to us. It's about God coming to us. It's about the blessings of the heavens coming to the earth. And in Revelation 21, this is exactly how final redemption is spoken about. It's spoken about seeing a, a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it's an image of the Lord being with his people. I will be their God. They will be my people and they will dwell in my midst forever. It is God bringing the blessings of the heavens down to the earth. And I probably will go back. I may even do... Um, either a Throwback Thursday episode where I just reinsert that episode that I taught on from Revelation 21. I'll, I'll give that a look this week and see if I think it would fit, if I need to rework it to make it a little more palatable now as we've talked about so many things in the Heaven series. But this is the way redemption ends. And we started this Heaven series by looking at the beginning at the moment in the creation story when the heavens and the earth overlapped, heaven space and the earth space, God space and man space overlapped in the garden and how God is always seeking to restore that back to way it originally was. And that's ultimately the direction that redemption is headed. And Revelation does a masterful job of making that clear for us, which again is one of the biggest reasons why I think it just crushes the church's ability to know who we are and to follow the lamb who was slain when we imagine that everything John's exhorting the church with in the book of Revelation just doesn't apply because we're no longer here. So I, that's all I have for you. And I just give you that to chew on. I give you that to ponder. I give you that to wrestle with, to argue with, to make notes about. I, I ask, invite you to engage with a friend and talk to somebody who, who, you know, thinks this way. Or if you've got other thoughts that you've heard before that, that are, that are better than what I've shared, you know, send them to me. I'd love to just continue to understand, to explore, to study right along with you. But I think embracing the reality that Jesus has come to bring the heavens to the earth and to restore, to restore the fallenness and brokenness of this world instead of just leaving it up to destruction and then just whisking us away somewhere else. It does not fit in my mind with the mind and heart 
of God. And so I hope this was helpful for you. Again, I'll look over some things for how we kind of wrap up this series and talking about where then, what, what are we looking forward to? What, what will redemption be like? How will God restore all things in the end? And I hope this is still an encouragement. Keep shooting me emails if you want or Facebook Messenger or whatever. And um, let's continue this conversation. So that's all the time that I've got for this week. I hope you have a fantastic week and I will talk to you next time. After finishing this episode and thinking back over what I had said, I do want to leave you with one last thought. And that is, if you're at all discouraged at the thought that we will not be leaving this ever broken world and sometimes fear has made its way in to your life or you've been taught that it's right to fear um, the political other or the immigrant or the um, unrest that our world is facing every day, I want you to be encouraged. Jesus came to his people in some of the worst Um, political upheaval that mankind has known. He met with them. He embraced them. He led them. He cared for them. He kept them. He held them. He comforted them. And he told them the truth. And what I really hope that this podcast does for you, and hopefully it has done this before, is to encourage you with the reality that Jesus says he will never leave us or forsake us. And that really is our hope. Jesus is our hope. Heaven is not our hope. Escaping this earth is not our hope. Leaving behind all the chaos and destruction, that's not our hope. Jesus is our hope. And of course, the closer we get to him, the more secure we are in his love and in his embrace, but the more we are able to see his heart and his love for the nations as well. And so regardless of what this life looks like or what you are walking through right now, just know that you are not alone, that Jesus is with you, that Christ is under the rubble, as Munther Isaac spoke about in Bethlehem this past Christmas. He meets us in the most tragic of places, in the worst kinds of events. And we experience his presence and who he is in his person in very, very powerful ways while going through suffering, difficulty, and trials. And so be encouraged that even though a belief in the rapture isn't maybe um, biblically sound and that he isn't going to simply remove you from the difficulty, that does not mean that you have to fear what might be coming. I personally would much rather face reality head on than to imagine that I'm going to be whisked away from something that I just don't think is biblically plausible. So anyway, I do want you to be encouraged. I hope you aren't discouraged, but just know Jesus is with you always, even to the end of the age.